How are we doing? We good? I, I'm here, I try every Saturday to come and bring some hope uh, for you. And, and the hope this morning is that rumor has it that next week, 70s, maybe 80s, yeah, of course it'll be surrounded by rain, but 70s or 80s, we might actually get a little bit of spring before summer comes. So excited about that. We've got some exciting stuff coming up, you guys, um, not just in the ways that we serve and, and those kinds of things. I know there's, there's some weddings coming up soon, yes. Uh, there's some baptisms coming up. We're very excited about to celebrate those, all sorts of good things. So thank you for joining us on this journey. It's hard to believe that we are still just 16 months old. Right? I don't know when we cross over to years where it's like an infant, you know, oh, look, he's three, he hasn't made me five months. Um, but we are still celebrating all that God is doing, all that he's done. Um, you know, Easter weekend, if you were here with us that weekend, we had record numbers all throughout our Crosswalk family. Um, almost 3,500 people throughout all the Crosswalk campuses and the Lovewell groups that came to worship Jesus. And it's just exciting to see what God is up to. Um, I know, I feel... Um, I feel bad sometimes because on a weekly basis, I get to hear stories about what God is up to in all of our different campuses, Portland, L.A., um, New England now. Crosswalk Clinton is now called Crosswalk New England, um, and there might be another one coming in Boston. Um, Crosswalk Chattanooga, we've got uh, Lovewell groups in different places uh, in the U.S. around the world. It's just exciting to hear how God is at work. So thank you for supporting us because not only are you supporting what's happening here in Portland, but really we're, we're doing things, we're learning things that are helping other groups get started and create gospel community. Um, so thank you for that support. Please always uh, pray, pray for this movement. Um, we are in our fourth week of what it means to live in the after. After the crucifixion and after the resurrection, wrestling with the implications for us, but also looking at the stories of what happened after the resurrection that we can learn from. Last week, we looked at the obstacle of shame and how Jesus comes to Peter to address the shame in his life that he felt upon denying Jesus. And you have to get rid of the shame. Shame is not a tool that God uses because shame makes us feel like we can't come to God, that we're separated from him. And why in the world would God go through everything that he's gone through to keep us at an arm's length? Now, shame is a tool of the devil, and we have to eradicate it from our lives. We have to let it go by holding on to Jesus. So we looked at that last week, and this week we're going to look at another obstacle to our faith, although this one is often more perceived as an obstacle than it is real, at least in our faith journey. And that obstacle is doubt. Now, I'm sure we have all had a moment in our lives when some us, someone told us something that just seemed too good to be true or just so crazy, there's no way that that actually happened, right? And so we have our doubts. If we're going to believe the story, if we're going uh, to believe it actually happened, then we have to see it for ourselves, right? We can't just take their word for it. In one way, we choose some of our travel destinations this way, right? We want to go to places we've only heard about or read about or seen on a screen somewhere. So people flock to the Middle East to walk the footsteps of Jesus. Or we go to Egypt to see for ourselves the Great Pyramid. Or we go to one of the most sacred spaces in the United States, the place where baseball was invented. 
Amen and amen. Cooperstown, New York. I, the Baseball Hall of Fame is there. I tried to convince my wife that it was a really cool place to go for an anniversary. She didn't buy it. There's a lake there. It's gorgeous. It's okay. Um, but we have to see these places for ourselves. And there's all sorts of things that fall into this category, right? I mean, we travel to places. Maybe we listen to a musician that we've always heard about was incredible, but then we go and listen to them live and have the experience. Or maybe we're told about a food that is so incredible we have to taste it for ourselves, right? So a few years back, my wife and daughter, um, they, they drew the better card, and they got to go on a school trip to Europe while my son Aiden and I had to stay back here in the States. Unfair, it's true. But they had an incredible schedule. They were going to go see a, a castle in Austria, a cathedral in Prague, um, and they were even going to go see the uh, Von Trapp house thing from Sound of Music. Um, and that. So they had a great trip, but Aiden and I decided that we weren't going to let the break go by without doing our own little adventure. So we decided to go to New York City. Um, every time I say New York City, I have that, uh, do you remember that, was that a salsa commercial? Or they said New York City. They made a salsa in New York City instead of the salad. New York City, get a rope. I don't know. That's always when I say, sorry. Side thing. Uh, but we decided to go see the sights and sounds that, uh, you know, that we had al always seen in movies or we heard about. Uh, and that. And one thing I was looking forward to was some authentic New York menu eats, right? food from all around the world, specialty stuff. I was so looking forward to that and trying all sorts of new things. I love doing that. My son, on the other hand, likes to eat food that he already knows he's going to like. And so, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I was going to try to convince him to, to take some steps to something new. And then we were in Times Square on the first day, and we're both just hungry. And I'm looking around. I'm seeing all these incredible places we can go try. And I say, all right, Aiden, sky is the limit. We can go. We can have anything. There's Thai, Indian, Vietnamese. Maybe we start off with uh, New York pizza by the slice. What do you want? And so Aiden's looking around, and I see his face light up. I'm like, what is it, buddy? What did you see? He said, Dad, look. There's Olive Garden. <laughs> I'm like, no. So our first New York meal, salad, breadsticks, and pasta that we could have had in any number of 900 other Olive Garden locations around the United States. Um, but I did get Aiden to try a couple of different authentic New York eats, like the cronut, right? The cronut was invented in 2013 in a tiny bakery in downtown Manhattan by a guy by the name of Dominic Ansel. It was the marriage of a donut, which I love, and a croissant, which I also love. Um, and within days of this being released to the public, there were hundreds of people lining up for hours outside of this tiny bakery to try a cronut for themselves. Now, I doubted that anything, let alone a pastry, could taste so good you would wait hours in line to have one. But we decided for ourselves that we were going to try it out. So the day came. We pulled up to Ansel's. We tried to find a parking space. There wasn't anywhere in sight. So I convinced Aiden to go stand in line <laughs> while I stayed in the car to guard it from getting ticketed or towed or anything like that. Anyway, so he was in line for 90 minutes before he came back with our precious little bag two cronuts. We raced to a coffee shop close by. We took out the cronuts. We laid them out on the table, and there they were in all of their glory. Um, and we stood for a moment just looking at the cronuts, 
waiting to devour, waiting to enjoy, and then we get into it. And I just, I can't, I can't really describe how it tasted, but I can tell you that in that moment, it felt like eating that cronut was, for that day, our spiritual act of worship. It was fantastic, but we had to taste and see for ourselves. And with that, we turn our attention and our focus to three different passages in Scripture that happened after the resurrection of Jesus. All three of them are connected, as we'll see. The first comes to us from John 20, verses 24 to 29. At this point in the story, Jesus had appeared to the disciples a couple of different times that we know of. But for whatever reason, the disciple Thomas was not with them when Jesus appeared. And so uh, the others had told him that Jesus was alive. But come on, how in the world can that be? He saw that Jesus was beaten, crucified. He died. He was buried. It's over. Jesus is gone. No matter how much they want that to be different, they couldn't make that happen. Um, so uh, though they had all seen amazing things in the last three and a half years, three and a half years of things that were unexplainable oftentimes, no one could raise themselves from the dead. When the other disciples told Thomas with great enthusiasm, we have seen the Lord, Thomas just assumed it was a figment of their imagination, something they wanted so badly that they kind of conjured it up. So Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Now Thomas gets a bad rap throughout history, right? Because we know him as doubting Thomas, which really isn't seen as a compliment. I've always kind of seen Thomas this way as the Eeyore of the group, right? Like nothing goes his way, right? I, I hear Thomas saying things like, I'd like to believe he's risen, but I can't. I'll just go back to hiding, even though no one sees me anyway. It's the best Eeyore I have, so thank you. Keep your applause to yourself. No, no. But we get Thomas, right? Again, sometimes these stories are put in here to help us connect. Thomas wanted empirical evidence, hardcore proof that the event had actually happened. And likely, he didn't want to get his hopes up for no good reason, because hope can be a dangerous thing, right? I mean, hope can make us soar, but when we lose hope, it can be devastating. And so sometimes the risk to hope feels too great. But we've all made comments like what Thomas makes here in this, right? I know I have. God, if only I could hear your audible voice, then I would believe that you're real. Or God, if only you heal my child, then I'd have faith. God, if only you'd fix my marriage, then I could believe. These moments often come during difficult seasons in life, and often we give God ultimatums. Always a good thing in a relationship. Our emotions drive us in these times, and we cry out, you show up, God, in the way I want, with what I want, when I want it, then I'll believe in you. And if you don't, I'm done. And far too often, what gets in the way of us hearing from God or seeing him work is our own expectations. When our expectations are fixed, we have no room for other possibilities, and we often miss the many different ways God actually does show up. I've experienced in my life that the more open I am to all the ways God could show up, the more I see him. For example, I believe with all my heart that I have felt God's hand touch my face through the mist of a waterfall during a difficult season in my life. 
I know that God spoke to me on a mountaintop through words that were repeated in my mind. And I know that I have seen God's miracles at work. I have seen him do what I thought was impossible, and I am reminded by that every week when I come here to worship and I look at the stage. God is at work. God is real. I believe it with all my heart. And in this story from John, Jesus does show up to Thomas. And as the story tells us, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Now, I imagine this moment in my head. I'm a little too visual sometimes. But I imagine this moment in my head as what the young people call a jump scare moment, right? I think the disciples were all in. It's serious. It's somber. I think Jesus shows up behind them. No one recognizes him at first. And then he has a comma that he places. He goes, peace be with you. And somebody in that room jumps. And Jesus probably laughs and laughs because sometimes Jesus is just funny. But it makes me think of a time when my uh, a friend and my uncle and I went to a house that was meant to, it wasn't a haunted mansion kind of thing, but the place was created with all these little scares to, you know, you walk by a place and a, and a blast of air hits you in the face or whatever. Um, and we went to this place that was set up in the mall, so everything was kind of makeshift and, and whatever. But we went into one room where it was so dark in the room that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face and we're standing by each other. We don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, you start to hear a sound, and the sound is the sound of a car, and it's racing, and it's going faster and faster and getting louder and louder as if it's getting closer and closer. Then all of a sudden, you hear brakes and screeching, and lights come on on the front of a car, and that car jumps out at you. And we were so surprised by that that my friend and I jumped back. We hit the wall behind us, which fell over into another wall of people that were staring at us. So the owners said that we weren't the first ones to do that. <laughs> so, so I think Jesus is a little playful in this moment, but he comes to Thomas this time. That is the purpose for this appearance. And he comes to Thomas because he knows about Thomas's doubts and his questions. And Jesus comes to help. But does Jesus rebuke Thomas for not believing in the testimony of the others, for not having faith? The story tells us, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Jesus comes to Thomas in his doubt and says, come and see. Put your fingers here, your hand there, so that you can believe. And we don't know if Thomas actually did this, but we do know what Thomas said. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. In the Hebrew, this would have been him calling Jesus Yahweh the God of Israel, which is what Jesus had claimed to be. Confession and worship is what happens when Jesus is revealed. When we see him for who he really is, it changes everything. When he is revealed in this room, we confess and we worship. When he is revealed in a song on the way to work, we confess and we worship. When our breath is stolen by a sunrise of the creator, we confess and we worship. Theologian and philosopher Herbert McCabe once said, Our Easter faith is that we really do encounter Jesus himself, not a message from him or a doctrine inspired by him or an ethics of love or a new idea of human destiny or a picture of him, but Jesus himself. In scripture, we encounter the risen Lord just like Thomas and we confess and we worship. 
But it's important to note that Thomas wasn't the only one with doubts after the resurrection. Just before a very famous passage that we refer to as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, there's an important commentary. Matthew tells us, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Now, many scholars think that Matthew is talking about two different groups here. There's the 11 disciples that were with him, but then in Acts, we're told there were 500 others gathered at that time. And so they think that what Matthew is saying, well, the disciples worshipped because they were sure of who Jesus was now, and the rest of the crowd, it was them that doubted. But I don't think that's true. It's not an accurate uh, translation. I think the best translation of the Greek text here says they worshipped, and they doubted. All of them did both. Jesus had been revealed, and so they worshiped, but in this moment, their worship is paired with doubt. And we don't know what their doubts were. I mean, maybe they were doubting that they could continue the message after Jesus was gone. Maybe they were doubting in themselves. Maybe they were doubting in some of the things. They still had questions to all the stuff that Jesus taught. They still weren't sure. They didn't have it all together. They didn't connect all the dots. They were still wrestling with questions. Whatever the case was, they worshipped and they doubted. In our modern era, we have many times been told that faith and doubt are opposite things. That if you have faith, then you don't doubt. And if you have doubts, then you must not have faith. But I think these stories were left behind to teach us that faith and doubt go together. When you have doubts, you ask questions, you search for answers and understanding. This journey doesn't weaken your faith, it actually strengthens it. I love the way author Rob Bell describes it. He says, for many people in, the, in our world, the opposite of faith is doubt. The goal then, within this understanding, is to eliminate doubt. But faith and doubt aren't opposites. Doubt is often a sign that your faith has a pulse, that it's alive and well and exploring and searching. Faith and doubt aren't opposites. They are, it turns out, excellent dance partners. Our doubts can actually push us to deepen, to, to bend on Christ all the more. Because no matter how many questions we ask, no matter how much we learn, this passage from Isaiah where God speaks through Isaiah uh, is going to be true. It says, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The theologian Paul Tillich once said, doubt is not the opposite of faith, it is one element of faith. Doubt is just one element of faith. It causes us to seek, to ask questions, and can even help us realize that our faith is still alive. But how does Jesus respond to the doubts of his followers in this moment? He comes to Thomas and lets Thomas touch his side. He meets him where he's at. To the people standing on the mountain who worshipped and doubted, Jesus said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, did you notice what he said to them about their doubt? Instead, he tells them to go. Go with their doubts, go with their questions, but most importantly, go with Jesus, who will be with you always. I'm not saying this is easy. You will never find anybody at Crosswalk telling you that the journey of faith is easy. 
but we will tell you it's worth it. And when it comes to believing in Jesus without seeing Jesus, Jesus knew that would be hard. He prayed for us specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this moment, he tells Thomas, right after his encounter with him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Doubts can be scary, hard and unsettling, but we don't have to wrestle with them alone. We wrestle with our doubts together as a community, whether here on a Saturday morning or in a connect group during the week or at a coffee shop when we meet together. Because, listen, when you can't pray, I'm, I'm more than willing to pray for you, with you. When I feel alone, I would love for you to come and remind me that I'm, I'm not alone, that we're in this together. That's what community is for. And every week, we come together to remember that even in our doubts, Jesus is still with us. We may not get all the answers, but we do get lots of Jesus. That's why we call this command of Jesus the great co-mission. It is a partnership, him with us, us with each other. So when we travel this journey together, we go into the world as agents of the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God isn't a physical territory or an earthly political regime. That's what the Jews wanted, and when they didn't get it, they had Jesus killed. So what is it? Early church father and theologian Origen tells us that Jesus is the autobasilia, which in English means that Jesus is the kingdom of God. Wherever the presence of Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God. Authors Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola say in their book, Jesus Manifesto, that the kingdom of God is the manifestation of God's ruling presence. Therefore, the kingdom of God is made visible when the community of the king, that's us, when the community of the king embodies justice, peace, and love together and then shares it with the world. Our call here in the after is to manifest the presence of Jesus, to be agents of his kingdom by bringing hope and healing and joy and peace and grace and love and justice wherever we go. With Jesus residing in us, we are the kingdom of God. And next week we'll talk about the how because it's all about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's intimacy with us. That's next week. For now, we must recognize that gathering here in this building, it's not just about us. It's not just about an hour a week to make ourselves feel better to get through maybe another day or another week. Our call is to be disciples and make disciples. People who follow Jesus and teach others to do the same while seeking to make this world a better place where love wins, where peace reigns, and where the oppressed are set free. And this work takes place in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, at our work, and wherever we have influence. There are a lot of ways this happens, but here are a few. We make manifest the kingdom of God when we invite people to come with us here to Crosswalk to taste and see what we find so special about this place. And when they come, we promise that we're going to love on them here. We make manifest the kingdom of God when we serve and give back to our community financially or by joining a ministry or starting a ministry. We make manifest the kingdom of God when we take time to listen to others and pray with them, when we seek to grow this church as a beacon of light and hope, not just in our hearts or in our homes, but in the city of Fairview, in the Oregon Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, in the Sisterhood of Churches, 
and to the ends of the earth. We are called to be the church and make manifest the presence of Jesus always. And there's so much more to this, but for now, one last item of note. After Jesus gives the Great Commission, we're told he was taken up into a cloud, and while they were watching, they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, when you pair this with the great co-mission of Jesus, here is what I hear the angel saying. Hey, don't keep staring at the stars looking for Jesus. He's going to come back the same way he left. But you've got work to do here, now. So let's get to work, right? Our faith tradition in Seventh-day Adventist Church, we've spent a lot of of time stargazing. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out the times, the seasons, the dates. We've even come up with some dates on our own to figure out when Jesus is coming. And that all comes from a good place, right? We want to see Jesus. But you can be, we've said it before, so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. You can be watching and waiting and looking to the stars and meanwhile miss our call to manifest the presence of Jesus and grow his kingdom here now, making the world a better place. That is our call as we live our lives here in the after. And friends, we've got a lot of work to do. So have you had Jesus revealed to you? I hope so. I hope it happens here every week. It is my prayer. Have you confessed him as your Lord and Savior? Everything we do here is to help you meet Jesus and surrender your life to him. So if that hasn't happened for you yet, please come and talk to one of us. Any of our leaders, our pastors, we'd love to talk to you about it. That's what we're in the business for. Has someone ever told you that your doubts have no place in church? They're wrong. Doubt and faith go together, partners in the dance. So may we here at Crosswalk help each other always be on the lookout for how Jesus will reveal himself to us. May we trust in Jesus even when we don't have all the answers, knowing that he is with us always. And may we answer his call to be agents of the kingdom of God, blessing others whenever we, wherever we go and loving well so that all people everywhere will know that we are his disciples. Crosswalk, as we look forward to the return of Jesus and can't wait, let's not forget our call to be his kingdom here and now. And friends, there's much work to do. So let's get it done. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God in heaven, I thank you so much for the after. I thank you for the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the call that in our doubts and in our questions, you come to us and you address those with us and you don't scold us and and you don't look down on us. You just come to us and say, it's okay. I'm here. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Thank you so much for never abandoning us, Jesus. We love you, and I'm, I'm thankful for the story of Thomas. I'm thankful for the story of the disciples who worshiped and doubted. And, Father, I pray as a community of faith, we could just journey together, supporting one another, holding each other up, inviting people to come and see and catch a glimpse of Jesus and be changed. And then we would get to work. Love you so much, Jesus. Help us to go from this place and love really well. Really well.
and protect us in the holy name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Would you stand back up with us?